Welcome to the seventh episode, sixth episode of the instruction booklet. I got ahead of myself there. Uh, I am one of your two hosts uh, who just recently rolled a nat one on his uh, performance check and is doing the best he can. Uh, that's Jeremy. And I'm joined by a guy who recently escaped the back rooms uh, via Portland, Oregon. And that is my co-host, uh, Michael Pons. Michael, how's it going? You know, there are a lot of liminal spaces in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. I more than once consistently found myself thinking I have flipped out of reality and I'm in the back rooms now. I mean, I, um, I was mostly thinking about your Airbnb picture. <laughs> oh, dude, that was so creepy. When I got there and my friends were like, we're giving you the haunted room. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> Little like crawl space doors. We kept making jokes about the gnomes coming to kidnap me. Yeah. So. Um, let me let me roll my per, my uh, performance check. Hold on one sec. I got a four. I don't know what my charisma modifier is, but that's not good. Oh, I yeah. failed what I was doing through. I was preparing for. Yeah, so we're definitely going to just be really lacking in today's episode. <laughs> I guess so. Unfortunately, yes. Uh, for those who are wondering, this uh, we're here doing our normal time we're a little bit behind uh we had a lot of stuff going on we've been doing some stuff lately um i've been doing some kind of like family stuff going on and uh michael's actually been doing some fun academic stuff like you want to talk about that a little bit yes i am working on my first dissertation chapter right now actually um in addition to the fact that i just attended a conference uh as we said in portland oregon um Pacific Ancient and Modern Language Association, I gave an interesting paper, well, I think it's interesting at least, on um, sort of a care politics close reading of the gameplay of Death Stranding as a sort of response to its uh, extinction and pessimism-obsessed narrative. I got a lot of good feedback. It was very validating. Um, I haven't actually been around a lot of other scholars interested in doing video game studies in academia. Nice. And so I made a lot of connections. It was very cool. <clears throat> I'll see in the future if any of them are interested in, you know, doing anything with the podcast. Yeah. Get some folks um, on here. Yeah. And then, you know, dissertation. So I've got a draft of my chapter that was due like a couple of weeks ago that I've now been trying to revise because it's technically due before the end of the semester, not the month. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I've been just very busy. And then also I've been playing a lot of tabletop role-playing games and that demands a lot of prep time because i'm dming for like two or three groups right now nice 
Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Had uh, been been playing any games, watching anything fun lately outside of all the academic stuff and tabletops you've been doing? I caught up on the boys, mm. um, so that I could watch Gen V, um, which is great. Um, I was concerned that Gen V was just going to be like a spinoff that was destined to just kind of live in the shadow of the boys, similar maybe to like you know Fear of the Walking Dead. Yeah. Um, but. I think Gen V has been just as good, if not even better, than some of the seasons of The Boys. So I'm actually really happy with what the show is doing. Awesome. Um, I mean, other than that, what else? I just got the first um, major book for the manga, Blame, that I've been wanting to read for a while. Mm. And then some other stuff. I'm certain that I've watched other things, but I'm totally forgetting right now. So much of my time has been committed to... Um, D&D and then Vampire the Masquerade ah. that uh, you know nice. that's fun what about you? Uh, w- uh, let's see I'm still playing Armored Core 6 I'm finally to like the very end of it uh, and FromSoft decided to do their usual hey this is the last boss of the game and so we're going to pull out all the stops kind of stuff on me uh, I, mm-hmm. that boss has been just a pain um, still doing the fun Hollow Knight streams which have you know been slow uh, I bought Super Mario Brothers Wander and I've heard it's good. knocked it out in a week <laughs> uh, that game yeah it, it does it definitely does some things that I like about like modifying the formula for like a 2D Mario game like obviously the one that I keep seeing everywhere in the news is they took the the level timers off i was like oh you know that's awesome it makes the game a lot less stressful but there are some levels that i am i'm really going to be curious how like kids like 10 and under are going to get through like we're talking to some like celeste levels of platforming (laughs) so interesting well that's cool yeah Uh, But they're like mostly like optional levels. So you mean like you can beat the game and not touch these like insanely hard levels. Uh, The very last level of the game, I went into it with like 50 something lives and finished the level with one life left. So, gosh, yeah, (laughs) it was it was tough. Uh, Other than that, let's see. uh, I've been just I haven't been really watching a whole lot. They've been re-releasing some Godzilla movies in theaters, so I went back. I went up to this really cool theater uh, nearby and watched uh, Godzilla 2000, and forgot how slow nice. that movie is. Um, yeah. And then you know all the really fun Godzilla Day stuff came out. Like they, you know, they did the suitmation with him and Jet Jaguar, and then they re-released another one. Um, it's, it's been some fun stuff. I've just been watching little things like that. I've been watching. I think I was telling. You, I've been watching a lot of Brian David Gilbert stuff. I've been like. I, I stumbled onto his like unraveled series and I've just been like plowing through that. So he's great. I was a big fan of a lot of his work with Polygon. Yeah. That's all the unraveled stuff. Okay. Cool. So, yep. But, uh, but yeah. And then as, uh, other than that, I guess, uh, I know I wrote it in the notes and my nice little like bone to pick before we really dive into the episode is, you know, the game award nominees came out yesterday. Yes. And I, as, even though I just played Super Mario Brothers Wonder and I'm like, oh, this game is great. They nominated it for Game of the Year and I'm like, really? <laughs> like like that and Alan Wake 2 are both on there. 
And I'm like, these two games are like super new. Like, why aren't they game of the year contention? Like, yeah. Baldur's Gate I, 3 makes sense, and Tears of the Kingdom makes sense. Uh, everything that I've seen of Alan Wake 2 uh, makes me think that it deserves to be on that list. Um, I've tried to learn about it without learning too much because I really want to play it. It um, looks nice. Yeah. Of course, you understand already yeah. that my, my graphics card is currently insufficient. Mm-hmm. And as much as I feel like I want to, I just don't feel like I'm in a place where I can justify the, you know, like the 400 bucks that I was thinking about dropping on the 3070. I mean, I'll see if any crazy deals come around Black Friday or Christmas, but yeah, I, just... I would be upgrading my rig to play one game right now, which is not something that I feel comfortable with. Right. It just it kind of annoys me that like, I don't I don't know. I, I guess this is like a weird thought in my head of just the this game came out like two weeks ago and we're gonna throw it in this nomination pile and i'm like i think there were a lot of great games that came out this year which i'm going to save some of the that statement for next episode because Mm -hmm. our obligatory award show is next and i'll use that as a chance to talk about games that we i've played this year that i thought were like really good and i also generally like i feel weird about like remakes and remasters being on a nomination list because like you know resident even resident evil 4s and game of the year um so obviously you being the the fan you are of baldur's gate 3 like yeah i voted for baldur's gate 3 for every single category (laughs) i i I did in some categories but there were some where i had to like you know, lean on other games. Like if, if Hi-Fi Rush showed up, I had to put that one because I loved that game. That game was fantastic. So but anyway, enough about games of the current era. Today we are talking about mainframe gaming. Um, so to preference this episode, we originally went into this episode thinking it was going to be boring as hell. <laughs> and then we started looking at the notes Mm-hmm. And then we both fell down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, a useful rabbit hole. It's actually been quite useful for my dissertation research. I do think I will end up talking about many of the things that we mentioned today in this chapter that I'm working on. So yeah, that has been really useful. Yeah, it, it's gonna it's a it's gonna be a fun roller coaster for out of an episode, y'all. Um, so yeah, uh, just a preference. We're still in the '70s, so this will be our last episode. Uh, sitting in the era of like the 70s and kind of this like early dawn of like video games, I guess would be the best way to describe it before we really break into the 80s. Um, and things are as the as more as we get cl- like closer to the modern era, the more we're going to be slowing down because a lot of things start happening in a lot of condensed space. Um, so this is kind of something that we viewed as we need to cover before we can leave because I think it was we mentioned in like a previous episode before console gaming and arcade gaming and PC gaming were kind of running parallel to one another during this time period in terms of development and then eventually they are going to collide so um, but I guess to start things off I can talk about some of the history of all this and that is uh, so like mainframe computers were powerful computers that used primarily by large organizations for like computational work, uh, like large scale multi-user processes. Uh, the term originally referred to a large cabinet called a mainframe that housed the central processing unit and the main memory of early computers. Uh, 
basically think about a, a giant room and like what you think of when you see these like old movies or TV shows where they're like, oh, this is our computer. And it's like a literal cabinet size computer. Uh, that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, because, you know, prior to the rise of personal computers, which were first called microcomputers in the 1970s, they were the primary type of computers that were in use. And then at the beginning of the 1960s, they were the only type of computer available for public purchase. Many computers uh, were relatively smaller and cheaper mainframe computers prevalent in the 1960s and 70s, though they were still not intended for personal use. Uh, but one definition from the 1970s required that a microcomputer to cost less than $25,000. In contrast, a regular mainframe could cost more than a million dollars. A million dollars in 1970s was a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot. A million dollars now is a lot of money. Yeah, I agree. Me, for me, at least. But yeah, but, that's definitely more. But like, could you imagine paying like $25,000 for a basically what equated to a personal computer? I couldn't. I mean, I I just got cold feet spending $400 on a graphics card. So Right. And this was... I, I could not imagine spending a million dollars on... This is a $25,000 machine that could just, like, barely do anything. So, right. My uh, phone is stronger than these things. Yeah. So, um, so while the commercial video game industry didn't exist at the, uh, at the point in early history of video games and would not until, like, the 1970s as a whole, programmers at these computers would create several small games to be played on their mainframe computers. Uh, most of these would spread only to other users of the same type of computer and therefore didn't persist as older computers were modeled were discontinued. Several, however, inspired future games or were later released on modified versions on more modern systems or languages. These early mainframe games were largely created between 1968 and 1971. While earlier games were created, they were limited to small academic audiences. Uh, we kind of covered some of this when we were talking about like Birdie the Brain and like Space mm -hmm. War. So, um, but mainframe games also continued to be developed through 1970s, but on the rise of the commercial video game industry, focus on and the focus on arcade video games and home video game consoles, this followed a rise of personal computers later in the decade meant that at the beginning of the 1970s, the audience and the developers of video games began to shift away from mainframe computers and mini computers and the spread of the general purchase programming languages, such as basic programming language, meant that later mainframe games could generally run on personal computers with minimal changes, even if initially developed on a mainframe. So, you know, the, all these people were working on these giant cabinet computers and they were creating all these academic stuff. And then suddenly these arcade games and these video games pop up on the screen. And now technological limitations start allowing people to start having more home computers. So the general focus of games started to change, but it didn't mm -hmm. quite leave the mainframe behind. So it's, it started it's, out as the equivalent of coolmathgames.com. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, so something interesting on mainframe was like the subject of called time sharing, which allowed, uh, resources of a single mainframe to be parceled out among multiple users connected to the machine by a terminal. Uh, computer access was no longer limited to a handful of individuals at an institution, creating more opportunities for students to create their own games. Uh, so kind of think of it like a LAN network in like a dorm room. So, but this giant computer that was the size of a room 
could allocate resources out to multiple people who were connected to it. So like with more advances from technological and software space programming environments across the country to find easier ways to share their work between institutions. So now people are starting to like share stuff with each other inside of a single institution. So this is almost kind of like early proto internet, which is kind of neat to think that like a bunch of people could sit around and just like send this stuff when the wider internet doesn't really show up until the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I'm shaky on the history of the internet, so actually looking into this has been very interesting. Yeah. Um, so then we kind of move into, finally, you know, we start having magazines dedicated to computer, to uh, computer-like languages and code, like Creative Computing, which came out in 1974. The publication is the earliest programming compilation books with 101 basic computer games in 1973. Um as a side, like, you know, basic was a programming language designed to create games or create programs for a computer. Uh, then you start having these wider area networks that allowed programs to be shared uh, more easily across great distances. As a result, many mainframe games created by college students in the 1970s influenced subsequent, subsequent developments in the video game industry in ways that space war side, because Space War was its own little thing. Uh, games in the 1960s couldn't do. So, you know, Space War was this thing that kind of like moved around and it was, you know, basically moved between machine and a machine. So it kind of is this like weird outlier as to where all these other mainframe games, some of which we'll be talking about, were connected via resources that these mainframes could talk to one another. Mm-hmm. So, um, in arcades and on home consoles, fast-paced action games and real-time gameplay were the norm in genres like racing and target shooting. On a mainframe, however, such games were generally not possible due to the lack of adequate displays. Uh, many computer terminals continued to rely on teletype rather than monitors well into the 1970s, and even most CRT terminals could only render character-based graphics. Uh, also, limitations uh, such as insufficient processing power and memory to update game elements in real-time were limiting factors. While the 1970s mainframes were more powerful than your arcade or console of the period, they had the major drawback of having to split their processing power between multiple users connected to it at once, which is more all the more the time-sharing stuff. Thus, uh, programmers of mainframe games focused on strategies and puzzle-solving mechanics over pure action. Notable games from the period include tactical combat games like Star Trek from 1971 by Mike Mayfield and the hide-and-seek game Hunt the Wumpus from 1972 by Gregor Yob, and the strategic war game Empire, which was in 1977 by Walter Bright. So I think um, I'll just say, like, one of the most interesting things to me mm-hmm. Uh, looking into the, this history and, and specifically mainframe games. I don't want to say like as a genre of games, but as like a different um, developmental branch, branch of, I guess, the video game industry, though it's not quite the commercial industry at this point yet. Yeah. Um, is this weird feature of having been limited technologically in such an interesting way? Yeah. Like... I think when people often think of the history of the video game industry and the way in which video games have developed over time, um, one of the 
most apparent things that people often think about from console generation to console generation is just that video games have developed more and more in the direction of graphical fidelity. Yeah. Um, and I think it's very interesting to look at an early moment in game history where actually some of the most interesting things happening in game design were happening in a sort of developmental space in which graphical fidelity was not at all what people cared about. If anything, it was more, um, I don't know, com complexity of experience and I don't know, just like nuance in the game design. Like, you know, it's not just Pong anymore or, you know, weird race car games. It's like people doing more interesting things, like some of the examples that we'll get to. Well, yeah. Um, and and you, you think I, about like Pong was going on like beside this. Yeah. Um, it was. And it's like so much less interesting to me than many of the examples of, of mainframe games that were coming out at the same time. I think it's just a really interesting case study in how technological limitations can act as a an interesting design obstacle that ends up producing far more innovation and variation in other ways than maybe originally anticipated. Right. What's, um, what's interesting to me about that is the fact that the first game that's mentioned is Star Trek, which would be mm -hmm. a, like a well-known property because you know the original star trek show was 1966 so you know someone watched the show and went oh man what if we made a game that was like a tactical like a strategy game yeah which you know as we'll it see seems... more popular culture stuff starts leaking into this stuff yeah i i feel like this era of video game development really looks like the wild west as far as like intellectual property rights is good or concerned like do they get permission to make the star trek game yeah okay interesting like oh i mean i don't um, know if they did or not like like did, did you guys like go and talk to the people uh, <laughs> to like right, make sure this what, was cool <laughs> that's what i'm wondering because i feel like in 1971 it's, it would have also been like who cares you know <laughs> Maybe some people did, but, you know, it's possible that, you know, this is just college students messing around. I mean, we'll see some very silly examples later, I think, of mm -hmm. other games borrowing from actual licensed properties that, you know, are weird. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, with the some of these earlier examples that we're talking here with tacticals. So, so perhaps the most significant game to come out during this mainframe period was a game called Colossal Cave Adventure, or simply known as Adventure. It was created in 1976 by Will... Uh, what's his, uh, How do you... Best way to pronounce his name? Crowler. Crowler? Okay. By combining his passion for caving with the concepts from a new-released tabletop game, you know, this, this little tiny tabletop game that maybe no one really knows of, known as Dungeons & Dragons... Uh, it was later expanded on by Don Woods in 1977 with an emphasis on a high fantasy series by J.R.R. Tolkien. Adventure established a new genre based around exploration and inventory-based puzzle solving that made the transition to personal computers in the late 1970s. I'll say, too, just very quickly, Dungeons & Dragons, the game itself, the tabletop role-playing game, mm -hmm. I believe the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons was actually published 
um, by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson uh, in 1974. Yeah. Um, so, so the mainframe game people that were taking influence from it and using it as a kind of influ- uh, source material or, um, I don't know, origin for a lot of the things that they're adapting into their games, they're working quick. Yeah. That's... These people are already involved in other gaming subcultures um, before they're getting interested in video games. Well, you know, if you think about it, like, it's kind of like what you were just talking about, like, running parallel to all this mainframe stuff is all the stuff with Pong and the Atari and everything that we had talked about two episodes ago where it's like this video game crash is coming up uh, in the late 70s in like in like 77 and 78. Meanwhile, on the other end of all this, people in these institutions who have these mainframe computers are developing these like, I would almost say like, rich and deep like gameplay but you know the graphics aren't there it's kind of like what you're saying where it's like there's these limitations on graphics but these people were more concerned about like the gameplay element than uh you know making it look pretty i'll say also and i i've kind of explained this to you before but Mm. i think where where people see something like the reliance upon text as representation for a game like Colossal Cave Adventure, some people see that as a detriment. You know, like the the graphical processing of the time was not good enough to convincingly um, recreate a cave system to visually represent to the players. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you have to describe it using text instead of visuals. Right. It is tempting to think about this as like, a, I don't know, an artifact of a bygone era. Like certainly today we might prefer having graphical, actual visual representations. And I mean, you might take this as an example, but I believe Colossal Cave Adventure just this year had a remake that was published on Steam that actually does have visuals rather than just being a text-based adventure like the original. Yeah. Um, I, however think that this is one very interesting example of how this technological limitation can actually be a, a, a feature rather than a bug for something like Colossal Cave Adventure. Yeah. Um, consider that in 2023, when people have access to various forms of entertainment media, like movies, television shows, YouTube videos, even graphic novels, like you know comic books and other things, that people still read regular novels. Mm-hmm. Um, there is still something deeply engaging about a, uh, I don't know, entertainment media or narrative media that is just text-based representation instead of visual representation. And I think that there is something amazing about the fact that text is actually still so useful as a way of describing scenes to people. Um, I've often thought about this a lot with regard to the fact that I've been DMing a lot for tabletop games like um, D&D and Vampire the Masquerade. I used to be really invested in trying to make maps that looked nice and you know when I was playing in person I even had you know like miniatures and, and I would try and build terrain and things that I thought would be cool for assisting my players in 
and sort of visualizing the scenes that they were taking part in. Um, but these days, I'm much more convinced that good, you know, imagistic description can be far more useful because players in their heads will imagine things far cooler than you can possibly make them look using, I don't know, some stupid Microsoft Paint map. Right. Um, or, you know, uh, plastic terrain. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no. Um, we kind of went over this when we were talking about the notes where it's like, yeah, you can convey so much more by just drawing like a big square box and saying you're in a cave right. uh, versus throwing out like you, you, you need you need a cave. And so you reach into like a, you know, your printed out maps and you realize you don't have a cave. So you throw out something that looks like a tavern. And you're like, just ignore that. This is a tavern. This is actually a cave like players are going to be able to visualize what they think of a cave. Right. And so the, the relevance for this, for something like Colossal Cave Adventure, is to say that other games at the time had, you know, crappy graphics from a modern standpoint. I don't think anybody playing a game from the 1970s these days would look at this and say, yes, I understand that I'm supposed to be looking at a car or a tree or a spaceship. Mm-hmm. But even today in 2023, playing Colossal Cave Adventure, the text at the beginning says, you are standing at the end of a road before a small brick building. Around you is a forest, a small stream flows out of the building and down a gully. I have a perfect picture of that in my head. Yeah. In, in the best possible graphic graphical fidelity that I could ever hope to have, I have a picture of that in my head. Mm-hmm. And so I really do think that this was like a brilliant decision for, for Colossal Cave Adventure and for many of the other text-based games that followed suit um, to just like, just to use text. And it's so much easier, you know, like the, the tech required to do this kind of stuff is so much easier than what other video games were trying to do. Yeah. Um, I really just think that this is like amazing. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it, but I'm fascinated by this. Right. Um, yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's interesting to me, like kind of going backwards, like watching this development versus how arcades and home consoles were approaching gameplay at the time. And then, you know, then it's like, like you're saying, people were adapting this stuff like lightning quick, uh, you know, in, in a two year time frame, it's like Gygax and them produced D and D it's a hit suddenly someone goes oh wow we could take this concept of storytelling and put it into a game and then Mm -hmm. you know lord of the rings they've like read it so they've you know they're taking tolkien stuff and they're applying it as well so yeah this is definitely the first moment i think where games become viable as like narrative media as well Mm -hmm. um you might be able to argue depending on a very loose definition of what counts as a story that games like i don't know pong have a story right it's two (laughs) people playing tennis right um but it's not until something it's not until games like colossal cave adventure where you have something that looks more traditionally like the kind of story that you would experience if you were to read a novel or a comic book you know you're a traveler wandering through the woods you find your way into a subterranean cave 
full of magical things and um this is really kind of i think the moment where video games become really interesting for somebody like me who is interested in parsing the relationship between the dual identity of video games as both games and storytelling media yeah that's fair um yeah so our it's like kind of like the next part of this evolution of mainframe games is probably the most interesting part of this entire journey that we've kind of this setup that i've like we've been building where we've talked about like there's these mainframe games it's the computer development and this is kind of where when we were studying our notes kind of the big the big breakthrough like the aha moment kind of happened for us and mm-hmm. so while most games were created on hardware with limited graphic ability one computer able to host the most impressive games was called the Plato system. And that's all caps P L A T O like a system developed by at the university of Illinois intended as an educational computer. The system connected hundreds of users all over the United States via remote terminals that featured high quality plasma displays and allowed users to interact with each other in real time. So here's a computer in 1970s. That's using a plasma display which is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, and apparently had a touchscreen. Yeah. Like one of the first touchscreens that was available on computers. Not necessarily this version of the system, but that popped up in the research as one of the very the many firsts that the Plato has laid claim to. Yeah. So this allowed systems to host an impressive array of graphical and or multiplayer games, including some of the earliest known uh, computer RPGs, also known as CRPGs, which were primarily derived like Adventure from D&D. But unlike that game placed a greater emphasis on combat and character prog- progression than puzzle solving. Starting with top-down dungeon crawls like The Dungeon in 1975 and The Game of Dungeons 1975 as well, more commonly referred to today by their file names uh Pettit 5 and <laughs> all lowercase d n like the letter n d uh, Plato yeah, Ar- I think I think D and I just want to say I think D N D is <laughs> one of the stupidest things that that popped out of this research. I like the acronym that a lot of people use for D Dungeons and Dragons is D and D, right? Like the symbol for and, and and the fact that somebody had the thought to make a game that is D and D. I mean, it's like <laughs> what does the know, N like, stand for? <laughs> Right. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you get the off-brand Fruit Loops because your mom doesn't want to spend the full money to get you the real Fruit Loops, and so you got to settle for like this Target brand, like or Great Value or whatever. It's like Fruit this Circles is giving me those vibes, <laughs> honey. Yeah, fruit Circles, right? We've got D and D at home. <laughs> we've got D and D at home, and it's D and D instead of D and D. Yeah. Uh, so Plato RPGs soon transitioned into first-person perspective games like Moria from 1975, Ublit, uh, 1977, and Avatar, 1979, which often allowed multiple players to join forces to battle monsters and complete quests together. Like Adventure, these games ultimately inspired some of the earliest personal computer games. So that was one of the things. We we found some articles about Moria and Ublit, and as we start to read it about them, we were like multiple players joining these games. Like clearly they just mean like multiple people can like sit down and play the same game. No, 
up to 10 players could play the same game at the same time. We're like, this is just an MMO. Right. <laughs> like, well, you were, you were looking into Moria, right? And it's like, yeah, people could remote access a shared world and play the game at the same time and actually have mm-hmm. like meaningful effects on the world that save over time and, and show up for other players. Yeah. And like, it would procedurally generate a world. And I think it was like, uh, your character would age in, in like a game time and like a character's lifespan wound up being like 137 hours in game. And then you could leave your items to the next character that you created. Like, and uh, Oubliette was the same way. Like it was, and you could like, I think like even in like with, uh, with Moria, you could like call for help. <laughs> like it, it was just, the more we started digging into this Plato system and some of the games that were created and then realizing that this was like in the back half of the seventies, the more our brains just started to like break. <laughs> right. Well, it was just so shocking to see, like I've never heard of any of these games except for Colossal Cave Adventure mm-hmm. before we did the research for, for mainframe games. Um, and it's so shocking to me to kind of learn that, the Plato system in particular lays claim to so many firsts in the video game industry that are not, I feel like, recognized by a lot of accounts. Yeah. Like, for instance, if I were to ask you what you said the first first-person shooter ever was, you might give me an answer like, I don't know, Wolfenstein or Doom. Yeah. Right. I mean, I feel like that's what most people in my life have said, you know, in many examples that I've heard when people talk about first the first first person shooter. But no, apparently it's some game called Future War from like, when was this from? 77? Yeah, I remember you sent it to me. Uh, It was crazy because we were like talking about it and then we started looking up like gameplay from all this stuff. Yeah, Future War was 77. Yeah, future. You can't even. I mean, it's such an obscure game that if you Google "future war game," it's like I can't even find it. I actually had to open up Discord and open up the link that I send you when I was researching from crpgadventures.blogspot.com. Yeah, that that was how far we had to reach for some of these games. <laughs> right. I had to go on. I went on YouTube to find gameplay of this game from 1977. I think I found a single YouTube video. Uh, and it had 53 views. Mm-hmm. This is so obscure. Um, but when you when you look at Future War, I mean, it's a really basic and quite frankly bad looking first person shooter. But it is a first person game in which you move around and you shoot things. Yeah. Uh, what was it? I found uh, one of the games we were talking about. Oh, right. We were, we were talking about like Ublia and like, you know, it was like a game that had like multiple character races. Uh, it inspired games such as Wizardry, uh, Might and Magic, Bard's Tale, uh, even Ultima, because it was a multi-user like mainframe game where multiple people could like log in to play. Uh, but what's crazy was was that I found uh, I found the manual for it, <laughs> and like, oh, yeah. and you start looking at this manual, and it's like staring at a player's handbook from like D and D. It's like 130 pages long, wasn't it? Yeah, but it had like different versions and stuff like that. But like, you know, 
it's 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 really crazy like and we'll we'll include some of these articles in the show notes because in case anybody listening gets like super interested in some of the stuff that we found uh but like yeah like moria had like 10 players who could all like just play the game uh and they can move to different uh panels and like and how the game was set up like i think like even here it's like since moria is a persistent universe with other players there's no reloading Though you can stop, play, and save your character at any point by simply logging off, the game remembers his status and positions when you log back in. Death, when it occurs, is permanent. So, isn't that kind of like a roguelike? <laughs> yep. like, or maybe even a Souls-like. You know? Yeah, like, combat takes place randomly in a wilderness and dungeons with varied enemies such as zombies, swordsmen, evil priests, reapers, orcs, trolls, dragons, devils, and elementals. Uh, in combat, you have six options. You can fight. You can trick to get the enemy to drop their guard for an instant kill. You can pray for divine intervention, cast a spell, evade, bribe the monster to leave you alone, or run. Like, it's more options than like I feel like a ton of RPGs today even have. Move over, Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> right. Here comes Moria. <laughs> Why is there not a genre of video game called Moria likes? <laughs> yeah. You know what's so annoying about trying to research this game right now is if you go on Google and you type Moria game, the only thing that shows up is the Lord of the Rings Return to Moria. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what the other like, part was. That, uh, these are just obscure. Uh, and And I feel like this kind of ties back to what maybe we talked about way back, like around episode one or so, like mm. with regard to video game history. In all of the research that I did last year when working on my preliminary exams, um, you know, looking at contemporary accounts of video game history, trying to come up with something like a solid trajectory for what the development of the video game industry looks like never once did any of these games get mentioned colossal cave adventure yes um moria oubliette future war dnd avatar absolutely not yeah and and it really kind of i think just goes to show that this is not like an over and done conversation I mean, if there are games like this that really deserve to be recognized in terms of the innovations that they pioneered for the video game industry, like more people need to be paying attention to this because it really looks like people have just forgotten a lot about this weird footnote in the history of the video game industry. Uh, it's, what's even crazier is like, even though, you know, you're saying like it's a weird footnote, it's really important like you know like we yeah. talk about how like you know and and this will be to come when we get to it but like when personal computers become more popular you know this genre of games starts to really affect like other stuff like you know we, we could probably even do an entire episode on just like D's influence on video games like because it's just yeah. it's huge um maybe that'll be something down the road one of these days uh but just like seeing all of these like computer RPGs that were mostly just text on a screen or what was it? The, the Play-Doh was like this orange glow or whatever. Yes. I think even one of the articles we found even like makes reference to 
the I think it was for the Oubliette. Which one? Yeah, I think. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's maybe maybe it's for both of them, but for Future War, um, yeah. the guy who writes this article, who uh, let me see if his name is here, so I can give him props, Nathan P. Mani. Oh, um, he he begins the article. Hold on, let's not let me scroll. He begins the article by saying, "Ah, the warm orange glow of Plato." Yeah. <clears throat> like if you look up. You know, for for anyone listening, if you look up visuals of how all of these Play-Doh games look, they're all solid orange like lines and text against a black backdrop. Every single one of them that I've seen. I think I mentioned it uh, earlier when we were t- when I was going through everything, but there was the game uh, Empire, and I think you even said yeah. like that one could play like up to sixty players or something like that. Yeah, something crazy like that. So, you know, it's weird to think of in this small bubble we have early rpgs strategy games first person shooters mmos um and you know there's another you know rogue was around this time right yeah 1980 so you know rogue is like in the area but like the idea of like permadeath and procedural generation you know, where games have persistence are already there. And then, um, I think you found one about a boss, like early boss fights. Yeah. So I think I'm pretty sure D and D, uh, um, not D and D D and (laughs) D has what, um, people would refer to as, uh, like the first boss fights and ever, and ever in a video game. Mm -hmm. Uh, apparently, in DND, you had to navigate through dungeons. I don't know if they were procedurally generated or not. Um, but every single level, you had to navigate this dungeon. And, and I could be wrong end. on the procedural generation thing. I, some of them, I think, were based on maps, but I think sometimes, like, encounters and stuff like that might be random. I would need to yeah. de- need to research more into that. So, you know... Yeah, I'm not sure. But don't they're, don't they're, take they're, our they're word dragons. on the procedural re, procedural generation part now that I'm like looking into it. So, sure, sure. Um, there were dragons at the end of every level, apparently, that you had to fight in this uh, in in DND. Yeah, um, I'm wondering, like, what does DND even stand? For? What does the N stand for? Well, that was the, that was just the file name. I know, but like. I don't know. I <laughs> you're, just, you're, just, you're so hung up on that. The it's, articles seem to suggest that it's derived from the abbreviation D and D. And I know a lot of people write D and D as shorthand for D and D. But like, <laughs> I don't know. The N doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But yes, there were boss fights in these games. And arguably this game can lay claim to uh, the first examples of what our boss fights are in video games. Outside of the fact that they're trying to, you know, skirt like copyright infringement. <laughs> yeah, who knows, right? Maybe they ask Gygax for permission. I have no idea. Right. I was like, I, I, I tried to look like while you were like talking about stuff, I was looking at the Star Trek game and I was like, well, did they get the rights to play to like actually make a Star Trek game? And I couldn't really find if they actually just got the rights to do it or if they just did it anyway. Um, but like, so it's so this was something that we were discussing too that I find interesting is so all of this like game sharing that people were doing on these mainframes where they could literally just like leave a game on the mainframe and they would just stay with that mainframe until and the only way you could physically move it to another one before these machines were able to communicate on greater distances was you would just have to take 
like data files and put them on another mainframe because that's how space war moved around so so it's like an interesting parallel that i would see when i was reading all this that, or that got me thinking was like kind of like how steam or like game services are nowadays where it's like we just connect to it you know you know we download the game from the services and then we play it so it's like sort of um you know prototype version of like how game services work today so you know and it, it's it's neat looking into all of this and seeing how like where we are today versus how these things were back then and i, I guess that kind of goes back to some of the stuff you were talking about in our earlier episodes where it's like you know looking back on history it's easier to draw parallels to what's going on now than when yeah. the, when you're in it at the time yes but also a lot of people who are participating in what is later recognized as relevant history mm-hmm. don't always think to preserve or um write accounts for these things as they're happening and so as a result you end up i feel like not having a lot of people you, you end up you know, stumbling like, across moria and ublia and right dnd there, there, there's a book actually that i've been meaning to pick up from the library that i discovered after we first started taking notes for this um it's actually called the friendly orange glow the untold story of the plato system and the dawn of cyber culture by a uh, brian Deere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's published in 2017. I, my university has a copy of it in the library. Apparently, I just searched it actually five seconds ago. So I'm going to go pick it up tomorrow and see. <laughs> Next thing um, I know, you're going to tell me that you've bought like you've you've found a store that has every Plato game, and you're just going to like play through D and D and Mori and Ubli. I think it'd be very cool. There might be you know like online databases where we can play these things, but I'm I'm worried that perhaps these are things that have been lost to time. I think somewhat. I think one of these games uh, that we were looking at it. I think it was. I think Ubia had been remade recently. Uh, there was like an updated version of it that, and because uh, look through that article. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a 1983 version of it that was put out, and then uh, it lives on. Um, uh, the co- one of the co-creators they created an iPhone and Android version uh, on GabbySoft in 2010. So it's kind of neat that, that, that like something like that still lives on, you know? Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if it's similar to the original or if it's had to make money you know like the new colossal cave remake is nothing at all like uh the original yeah Yeah, but um it's interesting to see that like how all of this stuff like kind of connected though and it's even weirder to or i guess it's not weird but it's it's even more interesting to think about like all the developments that were going on parallel to this, like how, you know, a video game crash happened in the middle of all this involving like a massive lawsuit and, you know, between companies and Atari, like decimating its competition. Right. The Fairchild Channel F rose and died. And then meanwhile, in some university computer lab, people were making these computer RPGs. 
Yeah. I think you said when we were talking about the notes, right? Like that this weird like pocket dimension of the gaming industry was kind of relatively unscathed by the crash because mm-hmm. computers were kind of insulated from the fluctuations of I guess like the home console market at this time. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the price point of trying to own a personal computer not to mention the fact that a lot of mainframes were mostly kept in institutions because someone's like, you know, some average Joe in like a suburb is not going to be able to afford a mainframe computer nor have the space to just store one in their home. Like, yeah, it's just like, honey, our power bills like nuts this month. What, what, what happened? Oh, you know, uh, I converted the garage into a mainframe computer. Yep. Epic gamer <laughs> moment. Yeah, exactly. Like I, that image of just like, you know, people nowadays, like I have this awesome gaming rig. Just imagine like somebody be like, I converted half of my house into a mainframe computer. Yep. My power Some bills are absurd. <laughs> but you know what? I can play D whenever I want. Exactly. And you know what the sad thing is, is even if I could find a, uh, a database on the internet, for which to play DND or uh, Oubliette or Moria, I would never have the authentic experience of having to convert half of my garage into a computer. <laughs> you also wouldn't like, get the joys of like being able to play with nine other randos. Exactly. So, so the experience is lost. Yeah, completely. It's, until we can go back in time, you know, and, and really experience it for ourselves. Right. Um, there was something else you had about mobile gaming in this. Um, yeah. In, in relation to I, all this. I cannot help. And, and perhaps this is a little bit of a stretch. I am still fascinated, as I kind of mentioned earlier, in the ways in which mainframe gaming over time, I think, became to just like so many of the things that mainframe gaming were doing in the 70s was abnormal to i guess the main trunk of the game industry Mm -hmm. Um, the puzzle games the rpgs the strategy games these were abnormal for the time and they were characterized by a need to grapple with weaker hardware which kind of forced the game developers to expand in other directions and think of other ways to make their games interesting and then over time it was like okay well so much of what game frame mainframe games were doing at the time now in retrospect seems totally normal it's like rpgs like different decisions like non-linear exploration combat you know like hallways procedural generation online it all seems normal Mm mm-hmm and I cannot help but think about, I guess, the mobile game industry as it's developed over the past decade or so. I think when I was growing up, you know, the idea of something being a mobile game was like almost like a, a, a curse. You know, it's like mobile games were seen as inferior. They were just like not real video games. Right. You know, like... You had Halo 3, and then you had, I don't know, Flappy Bird or Minesweeper. <laughs> I've got Snake on my phone. <laughs> like, that's stuff. Right. I remember, like, I used to play video games on my dad's cell phone, and it was, like, crappy. Like, I had this God of War game that was, like, you know, not a real God of War game. It was, like, some, you know, 2D platformer that was 
Mm-hmm. A bad attempt. I actually, I had the Elder Scrolls Four Oblivion on like my dad's like Verizon flip phone back in two thousand and seven. <laughs> what? It was not anything at all like Oblivion. In fact, it was a top-down adventure game, more akin to. I, this is like a weird core memory that I just re-unlocked for myself talking about this. <laughs> um, I'm going to look into this after the game. If anyone is curious about this, look up like cell phone oblivion. It's real. I promise you it's real. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure our editor, uh, as I, who is a huge Elder Scrolls fan, would be interested in knowing this. <laughs> right. So, like, back back in the day, before there was memes about Skyrim being released on every single platform, you could play Oblivion on a cell phone. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't the real... It wasn't anything at all like the actual game. I want to play Oblivion, to say, but I have Oblivion yeah. on my phone. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, back in the day, mobile games were just inferior, I guess, like, gimmicks or recreations of what were just better on console. But I feel like the more technologically advanced things like cell phones and tablets and and handhelds get the more mobile games are kind of just turning into well i mean video games like yeah so many popular games these like you can get PUBG on your phone you can play dead by daylight on your phone um so many you know like popular trading card games like magic the gathering arena hearthstone legends of runeterra uh marvel snap Yep. All are on your phone. I mean, look um, at like stuff like, like Genshin Impact. It started right. as a mobile game. Genshin Impact and Honkai Star Rail. I yeah. think. I think Honkai Star Rail is on Steam. But yeah, well, like, are, they were originally developed as mobile games, right? And they're also just like, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, because I don't play Genshin Impact, these are also just like fully functional, decent video games in their own right. Mm-hmm. And and part of me wonders i have not looked into this yet but part of me wonders if there was a similar thing happening with mobile gaming like i wonder what kind of innovations and and what kind of decisions the developers had to make in designing mobile games that perhaps have influenced the game industry in ways that maybe we haven't realized yet i mean you know there are some bad ways like microtransactions and then free-to-play monetization right um but I am curious to think about this uh, as as like another example of maybe what happened with mainframe gaming. You know, like a weird offshoot. Mm-hmm. Makes you wonder, um, like, what uh, if at any point, like, you know, these people who were playing on these mainframe games, maybe they went to an arcade and saw all these arcade stuff, and people were just like, like, oh, you know, I've I've been putting so many hours into Pong and all this, and someone was like, "Boy, you should come to our institution and check out this like this this Moria game we've been playing. You know, we've been at it for like days." And like, someone's like, "I, right, you know, who wants to play on a computer when I've got this thing at home?" And it's like, you know, this kind of almost like just like I wonder if there's like this weird like separation mentally for people between they don't think of gaming and their brain doesn't think about computers like that versus during that time period that all they knew of video game wise was arcades and home consoles. Right. You know, people think of their cell phone and they're just like, all it does is text, send text messages, allow me to cruise the internet and, you know, make phone calls. Right. 
they don't think, oh no, I'm going to go play Genshin Impact for like four hours. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I, it's so weird for me. Like, I guess this is like kind of like wrapping stuff up here, but like, sure. like final thoughts on this. I think it's weird to me to think about when I think of the seventies, I don't think of like in-depth games where multiple players can get together and, you know, you know, do a dungeon crawl. That's not in a tabletop sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think mainframe gaming has a lot that could be dived into and, you know, and I, I think we discussed this when we were going over the notes where it's like, there may be a point where one day we come back and look at the Play-Doh as a whole. Yeah. So. Well, I'll let you know what my, because I'm going to keep researching this. I feel like yeah, uh, the, the dissertation chapter that I'm writing about right now, um, I think I'm, I'm tentative title for the chapter is from the tabletop to the desktop. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about the history of tabletop role-playing games as a prehistory to computer role-playing games yes. um and what i what i needed to really get for this chapter was kind of the moment in which video ga our games do make the trick role-playing games do make the transition from the tabletop to the desktop that seems to be happening in mainframe games yeah so i'm definitely going to be looking more into this i'm going to get this friendly orange glow book <laughs> uh, but even like you know I'm looking through the references on the Wikipedia pages for things like mainframe games and Play-Doh and like just trying to find the references that these articles are, are drawing from. It is so sparse. I mean, it really, I just feel like there's not a lot of historical work that's been done on, on mainframe games in depth. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of it is actually just hobbyists like on you know the crpg adventures blogspot and people who are really invested in yeah um rec record keeping his history work but right not many books well so uh, i guess uh, do you have any closing thoughts on as we finish out this episode um nothing really i mean i think if i have any closing thoughts it's that i hope listeners are as shocked and baffled by many of the things that we discovered going down this rabbit hole yeah. uh, as I am, because this has been insane to me learning about how interesting and varied and unique so many of these early Play-Doh games are. Yeah, it's, it was just so funny because like I, I did, I like I wrote down all the history stuff and got the notes together and we went over it and I thought this was just going to be just a like a lame duck of an episode that we were going to put out. Like, look, we, we've, we've got to do this. We've got to do our due diligence so we can talk about stuff in the future. And then we started looking at the notes and then it just suddenly turned into what the hell? <laughs> like this yeah. has just been sitting here the entire time. You're telling me there were first person shooters and MMOs in the seventies. <laughs> am, am I, am I, am I hallucinating this? <laughs> so yeah, this is wild. So, well, all right. So that kind of wraps up our episode about mainframe gaming. I hope, you know, yeah, as, as, as Michael said, I hope you as the listener take away like this holy shit moment of what do you mean? There's MMOs and first person shooters in the seventies and maybe look into it more as well. Um, so next month 
as we kind of hinted about it, will be December, and it's a, an off-episode month, and we'll be going into the Instruction Booklet's Obligatory Game Awards show. I'm excited. Um, we don't. We sort of know what we're going to do. We're probably just going to eat up as much time as we can and have a lot of fun while we're doing it, and use it as a chance to talk about things like the best pettable animal in a video game. So... Um, and that will be the last episode of this year, though that doesn't mean we're going anywhere because we'll definitely be back in January and we are starting to lay down the groundwork for what's to come in the year 2024. Um, I do know the first thing that we'll be doing when we get into January, our first history episode, is we're finally breaking into the 80s. We will be leaving the 70s and 60s behind, and we are going to begin the nice, fun adventure of getting into the 80s, which begins with what is called the golden age of video games. <laughs> which I'm, I'm beginning to believe the golden age of video games is the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Michael and his 30-minute-long debate on why the 70s were the best era for video games. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we'll have a few things. February just happens to line up and being our birthday month, so we might do something fun for that. Uh, then we'll probably have some more. Uh, we have some other fun things planned in 2024. We'll have our one-year anniversary show in April. Uh, we don't know what we're going to do for that. Uh, we also, I've, we've also been informed by a mutual friend of both of ours that Monster Hunter will be celebrating its uh, 30th anniversary, I think. <laughs> Um, I know there is a big anniversary for Monster Hunter. I don't remember what exactly, but uh, I only played a little bit of Monster Hunter. Uh, so, so yeah, that'll be kind of uh, maybe that'll be work its way in. Um, and uh, some more fun stuff will be coming in the next year. Like I said, we'll probably be spending a good deal of time in the 80s because a lot of stuff happens uh, from you know, the supposed golden age to the crash that damn near killed the industry as a whole, uh, to Nintendo grasping the reins of what was left of, you know, the, the waste heap and plunging us into the future known as Nintendo, uh, PC games start to become bigger. You know, there's the rise of the Apple two. There's just a lot to cover in history in the eighties. So um, but as always, I thank you for taking your time and listen to us ramble about video games for, you know, an hour and a half, maybe less. So I guess I'll wrap this up now with uh, our social plugs and we'll we'll close the chapter on this mainframe gaming stuff. So uh, Michael, where can the folks find you on the Internet? Um, as always, I'm on Instagram at mackerel underscore prawns. And I think I'm on threads is the same thing. Oh. I don't. <laughs> you made I the jump to threads. <laughs> I mean, I have it. <laughs> I, uh, I don't check it. Yeah. Uh, but I don't. I've never been a Twitter person anyway. So, yeah. Um, you can find me on uh, twitch.tv slash backwards hero. Uh, I've been playing Hollow Knight on Monday nights. So it's just like a fun thing. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook under my art, which is press art F4. That's 
A-R-T-F and then four because like alt F4. Uh, I'm also on Caging Greatness, which is the other podcast, uh, which we want to give like a nice shout out to Caging Greatness because our editor was nice enough to throw our backlog of episodes on there. Uh, there was some there was some stuff that went uh, with the AYCH Extra channel and uh, they, uh, Caging Greatness was nice enough to put all of our previous episodes. So if you're listening from the Caging Greatness show, hi. Welcome. <laughs> and uh, thank you for listening. Uh, you can also find the instruction booklet on Facebook under uh, instruction underscore BK. Uh, we also have a link tree. That's a uh, link tr.ee slash instruction booklet. And you can find all of our links. It has my social stuff. It has Michael's stuff. It has links to the AOICH stuff as well as the caging stuff. And you can find everything there. And it's pretty easy and it's a nice little all encompassing thing. So uh, be sure to keep an eye on some of the social stuff. We might be reaching out to anybody that's listening for ideas for our obligatory award show. Uh, we even might do some some silly fun stuff with it. Who knows? But I, I know it's going to be a nice little like a sigh of relief and breather from, you know, constant notes. And we can just kind of goof off for a fun episode. Uh, but other than that, again, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for everybody that's always listening to the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, so, yeah, I guess yeah. that it's it. Thank you, guys. Yep. Y'all have a good one.